This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, uh, Evolution of Infectious Disease. Uh, I hope you're having a good week. Uh, finally, in San Diego, the sun is back out, which we're all used to, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. You can see it kind of glowing from my windows in my office right now. Okay, so let's uh, let's get to um, let's get to the lecture. As we start all lectures, let's take the temperature of COVID-19. So, in the last couple um, segments of taking the temperature, I talked about how we appear to be bending the curve and that um, the number of new cases is not increasing as rapidly as before, and so our social distancing has been effective, um, and there's a lot of talk now about whether or not we can return to normal. And the answer to that is certainly that we cannot return to normal yet, um, but certainly the things that we, we are doing are, is helping us, and really what it's helping us do is keep the instances of COVID-19 low enough that our medical systems are not overwhelmed. We are a very rich country and we have lots of medical resources, but our system could be overwhelmed by COVID-19 spreading out of control. And so our goal so far has been, um, we, we can't eradicate the disease at this point. We don't have therapeutics to do that, uh, but we can just slow down its transmission so that if people are sick, they can receive medical attention um, and we don't overstress the system. And so now that we've, we, we see that social distancing is working, how long do we have to stay distant? Um, can we go back to normal life? Um, and what are the next couple years going to look like? And so these questions were all answered uh, by a group at Harvard um, uh, School of Public Health, and they, they were published in a paper in Science Magazine uh, just two days ago, and it, it really shows us sort of what our, what our future may look like. Um, and I have to say that it's, it's, it's not grim. You know, we're not going to have uh, a system that where our, our medical or a condition where our medical system collapses, but we will probably be dealing with this for a couple years. So what these um, Harvard scientists did is, and so here's the, here's the paper, um, and here's the abstract, and I just highlighted a couple segments in the abstract. Um, so prolonged or intermittent social distancing may be ne necessary into 2022. So right now, the only tool that we have to fight COVID-19 are things like social distancing, surveilling the population uh, of, for infections, uh, quarantining people, things like that. We don't have medications, we don't have therapies. And so these scientists said, okay, if we don't develop therapies, what will our reality be like? Can we keep this thing under control? And how often can we um, pause social distancing? And if we, um, if we pause it, will we have to reinstate it later on? Will the disease reemerge uh, and cause more and more problems? So, they, they use mathematical modeling um, to do this. 
Uh, there are models where these epidemiological models, we will go over a class of epidemiological models uh, later in the, later in the, the term. Uh, the, they will be related to these types of models, uh, but these ones really focused on uh, the particular spread and characteristics of SARS-CoV-2, of course. Um, and these models, they're, they're very complicated. They do make assumptions. Anytime you make a mathematical model, you have to make assumptions. The assumptions in this model are pretty good. Uh, they use data from other beta coronaviruses that spread in human populations. So remember, some of, some of the common cold is caused by uh, multiple, multiple different strains of beta coronaviruses. And so they can look at the behaviors of these other related strains of coronaviruses and make pretty good predictions for what they expect to happen with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, they can also inform this with information on SARS-CoV-1, uh, MERS, and um, yeah, so the, the model has a number of features. Uh, it makes assumptions about how long immunity lasts for SARS-CoV-2, which we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, you might be immune uh, for the rest of your life, or you might be just immune to it after you're infected for just a, a year or so. And so that's up in the air. Uh, they also made assumptions about whether or not if you had a previous coronavirus that caused you to have a cold, whether or not now you would have some level of immunity, this is called cross immunity, um, to uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and there's evidence that certainly these coronaviruses that cause the common cold give you, gave people immunity to SARS-CoV-1. And there's some evidence, uh, look, looking at the data, it's not direct evidence, it's indirect evidence that this is also true for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so that's a little bit of good news. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that these common colds are also seasonal, which means that we might have a, uh, a little bit of a break from, um, you know, from the, the constant pressure of SARS-CoV-2 uh, in the summer months. But if that's true, certainly in the fall, it'll come back and we'll have to monitor and uh, deal with it. Okay. So I'm gonna actually get into the model results now. And uh, there are going to be four panels that I walk you through uh, for the dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 and or actually the dynamics of people that are infected with SARS-CoV-2 uh, and the dynamics of people that are in, uh, are in critical care caused by SARS-CoV-2. And um, so the four panels are for four different scenarios where we look at whether or not there's seasonality for SARS-CoV-2. So we expect there will be, but we don't know that for sure. So it's prudent to perform models with and without that feature. Um, and also, um, there's kind of two different scenarios. One where we just keep the amount of medical capacity, ICU number of ICU beds constant, just at the level that we have them right now, or if we double the number of beds. Doubling the number of beds allows us to basically uh, social distance a little bit less so that we can have uh, more capacity to deal with this disease spreading through the population. Um, and you know, and um, then more people will gain immunity to it uh, faster. And that will eventually lead to us being able to have 
as a population herd immunity. This is a concept that we will discuss in detail in the math behind it later in the lectures. But herd immunity is where you hit a certain threshold of people that have already had the disease and are now immune to the disease. And so it has a similar effect to social distancing because um, the disease is unable to spread as well because it keeps encountering this blockade, this, uh, this dead end of a person that's already immune. And so that threshold for SARS-CoV-2, at least by these models, is 50% of the population. So that's a lot of people that have, would have to get sick and then uh, recover um, to get to that point. And we certainly don't want to get to that point quickly uh, because we'll overwhelm our hospital system. But if we don't ever develop therapies, uh, vaccines, and other ways to treat it, then this is ultimately what, what, what we're going to have to experience. Um, so this is a model that doesn't factor in therapies and just says, can we control our behavior in ways so we don't overwhelm our hospital system and we get to that point of herd immunity? How long in the future do we get to that point of herd immunity? So let's actually just look at the data, and then I think some of those things I just said will make more sense. As always, start with the axes. Make sure you understand what the axes are saying, and then you can move forward and look at the dynamics. And so we have uh, time on the x-axis, and uh, this is months, obviously, and, and it's over many years. Uh, we, have on, we have two different y-axes. So the black line here, this black line, uh, corresponds to this axis. So that's just the prevalence of the disease. Um, that's like the number of people uh, per, or, or the fraction of people that, that um, have the disease. Uh, and then here's a number of critical cases uh, that where people require hospitalization and require ICU beds. Um, and so uh, that, that red line uh, aligns with this axis over here. And so what we see is that, you know, of course, um, the number of cases began to increase in the United States. This is modeling for the United States. Um, and uh, we then see that uh, we started social distancing. And so the number of cases uh, crash. Uh, there's always a time lag between this increase in the number of cases and then uh, the increase in the number of critical cases. And then, uh, so after, after a while of social distancing, and you can see that it's many months actually. So that's kind of bad news for what we're going through right now. Um, but uh, then uh, we can sort of let off social distancing for a little bit uh, in late summer. And then this disease will come back because there's always going to be some low level, you know, being spread around. It's going to be really hard to completely get rid of it until we have therapies. Uh, and so it'll come back, and then once it hits this threshold, so this is a threat, this is the upper threshold for when we have to begin social distancing again, and this is a lower threshold for when we can stop social distancing. These, um, these squares are where uh, the periods where we are social distancing. And this is the scenario where we have no seasonality for the disease, so hopefully we do have seasonality. Um, and we have no increase in the number of ICU beds. So we see that, you know, this predicts that this is just going to oscillate for um, a very long time, uh, for many years. Uh, and even when we, when we get out to this point here in July in 2020, 
um, you know, there's still going to be oscillating cycles thereafter. Now let's look at, this is the worst case scenario. Let's look at better cases, case scenarios. So here is where the model includes some seasonality, which we expect that there is some seasonality for SARS-CoV-2. And you can already see that, especially in these summer months, um, the, the period of social distancing can be extended for much longer. And, um, but we still have cycles where we have to distance to stop the spread in order to avoid getting to this point here, which is um, where we begin to overwhelm the, the hospital system. And so the next scenario down is where we don't have seasonality, but we do have an increase in the number of ICU beds. And so what this is effectively doing is letting us sort of uh, have more people infected by the disease, um, but relatively safely because we have hospital capacity for those people. Um, and then we social distance. And so it starts out identical or nearly identical as, as this up here, um, but you can see that there then gets to be sort of longer and longer periods where you uh, don't have to social distance. And that's because more and more of your population is immune to the, the disease. And so basically it's, it's, it's uh, slowed down and it's spreading because of that immunity. And what you get out here is um, you, you see that the disease is no longer rebounding like it was before. There's a critical number of people that are resistant at this period point where um, you, you no longer have to um, social distance because you have herd immunity. And the last case scenario, which is the one that I hope we undergo, um, I actually hope that we develop therapies and, and it's not even as bad as this one down here. Um, but uh, in this last case scenario, we have both seasonality and we increase the number of ICU beds. And so we do have a really prolonged period next, uh, next year where we don't have to worry about social distancing. Um, and uh, after another sort of boom in the, in the winter, uh, we will have enough people immune um, following that January that we will have herd immunity. And so this is, in one sense, really bad news that life is not going to go back to normal, um, but it helps also highlight what we need to do in order to deal with this pandemic. Um, you know, we need to have periods of social distancing. We need to be able to uh, surveil the population of people and whether or not what, at what level people are being infected by the disease so that when we hit these thresholds, we know when that is. And so we just hit the social distancing uh, gas pedal, um, or I guess it feels more like a break, um, at, the, at the right time where we don't overwhelm our hospital systems, but we also don't distance for longer periods of time than is necessary. Um, and uh, so those are the two things we need to do, keep social distancing and surveilling the population and periodically restarting the social distancing. And um, the, last, the last thing that we kind of have to do is more psychological in that we have to just prepare ourselves that this is not, there's not an easy fix here. Um, yes, hopefully we have a vaccine in like a year and a year or a year and a half. Um, you know, hopefully some of these therapies work. Uh, that we'll talk in a couple talk about in a couple lectures, but this is there, there's no easy fix here. This is going to take just a lot of hard work and patience 
and we need to prepare ourselves psychologically. So this is bad news, but we have to face it and we have to move forward. These are just plots that accompany these, these simulations. They indicate at what, at what point in time under these different scenarios do you expect to see um, herd immunity developing? And so we see under these scenarios, we get, we get there you know, in 2022, um, and uh, then we have much more relief after that point. Of course, that timeline is sped up if we have a vaccine, and there's lots of vaccine trials uh, happening right now. These take-home messages, uh, we, already, we already went over, actually, so I'm just going to move forward. Okay, so let's actually get to the lecture. Um, this one is on antibiotic resistance, and unfortunately, it's also not very cheery. <laughs> Jeez, these are very tough times, guys. So if I gave you these two quotes that the UK medical chief officer said, this is a catastrophic threat, and the Centers of Disease Control in the United States said, this is a nightmare scenario. Um, nowadays, you'd probably think that I was talking about COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're experiencing. But when these were said, and I forget how many years ago, probably about five or six years ago, um, they were actually referring to another possible crisis on the horizon. And the crisis that they were talking about is the evolution of antibiotic resistance. So we will go through the history and everything about antibiotics, but basically we developed antibiotics. They transformed the way that we're able to do medicine because people were not as often dying from bacterial infections. This then led to selective pressure to promote genes and mutations that confer antibiotic resistance. This antibiotic resistance occurs everywhere around the world. Um, and if it keeps happening, if it keeps spreading antibiotic resistance, and if we are unable to use antibiotics, uh, we predict an, uh, a, a large number of deaths uh, by 2050. And so this is just one uh, uh, research uh, report, um, but we, we predict you know, millions and millions of deaths all around the world from diseases that we used to be able to treat with antibiotics. So this is a warning, just like we had a warning about a possible pandemic. And you know, obviously we did not heed that pandemic warning as, as closely as we should have. Um, and, and now we're in this terrible situation. Well, this is a warning that, you know, in the next coming decade or so, we are going to have to deal with this problem of the spread of antibiotic resistance. And we're going to have to be smart about it. We know it's going to happen. Uh, we can do the math. We can understand the processes that lead to antibiotic resistance. We'll talk about those today. And so we need to figure out ways to mitigate the spread of antibiotic resistance or better ways new, uh, of developing new therapies. Okay, so today we're gonna to talk about just the evolution of antibiotic resistance. Next time we're gonna talk about kind of smart ways to use antibiotics to stop the spread of antibiotic resistance and also new advanced biotechnologies that may even help us reverse antibiotic resistance. So in order to combat this problem, 
we first need to understand how antibiotic resistance evolves. We looked at this figure in the first lecture. Um, and in this lecture, uh, we were talking about, you know, poss the, the possible problems besides just COVID-19 and the, the spread of antibiotic resistance. And this is just this very surprising graph that shows that since we've been using antibiotics, uh, a class of genes called beta-lactamases, um, these are a class of genes that confer antibiotic resistance. Their prevalence in microbial communities and microbial populations has just skyrocketed over, skyrocketed over the years. This is that exponential growth that we talked about last time. Um, and so there's, very, there's been strong selection so that microbes that have these, uh, have these genes do really well. And so they increase in numbers. Um, you know, they're adaptive, like we talked about last time and they increase in number and frequency in the population, but also these genes can be spread horizontally so that one bacteria donates these genes to another bacteria. And so antibiotic resistance can spread, not just by a bacterial cell doing better and having more offspring and the typical natural selection, but also by giving genes to other bacteria that don't have uh, antibiotic resistance genes. So this is a major problem. You know, we have to bend this curve as well. So the first question that we have is, well, you know, why, why are there these beta-lactamase genes and other antibiotic resistance genes? Um, where did they actually come from? And I, I wanna say that we're not the cause of the existence of these genes. These genes, already existed in microbial populations well before we ever started to use antibiotics. We are the cause of them rising in frequency, but we're not, we, we did not, our development of antibiotics did not um, pressure bacteria to sort of create these genes. Um, and so the data that supports this um, idea is, is really interesting data. Um, and it was uh, gathered by taking ice cores from the Arctic in Canada. And um, uh, the research I'll talk about is uh, Gabe Perrone, uh, who is at Bard University now. This is research he did when he was at Harvard Medical School. And uh, what, what Gabe and his collaborators did, and this is not a picture of him, I don't have a picture of him doing it, um, is they went up to the Arctic and they took core samples and so this is what an ice core looks like. They actually took the core samples in permafrost. This is soil that is frozen indefinitely, or at least until global warming uh, dethaws it. Um, and what they could do is that, just like in Richard Lenski's experiments where he freezes down bacteria uh, from different time points and he can resurrect the bacteria and sequence their DNA to look at the, um, look at the number of mutations and look at, he can even resurrect them and grow them. Um, these core samples probably don't do as good of a preservation as a controlled freezer in the lab, um, but they do preserve DNA in them. And so, and unlike Rich's who can experiment where you can just go back 30 years, you can go back tens of thousands of years. And so uh, the way it works, of course, is that there's sort of layers of new permafrost being built up over time. And so that creates this, what is like a fossil record, but it's a frozen record. Uh, and so 
what Gabe did is he actually um, looked back at the DNA in these samples from different um, depths in the, uh, in the core. So these are different depths. Um, and this is just going back in time. Um, the aging of the, the, the time or the sample is not the best. Um, he knows that this period here is for 5,000 years, but it, you can go even further back in time, um, much, much further. And so they looked at DNA from all of these different um, time periods or, or core samples. Uh, and what they could do is they could sequence them and compare the DNA to modern DNA that they know uh, is responsible for antibiotic resistance and see how far back it goes. I even think in this paper, they um, put these bits of DNA that they thought were antibiotic resistance genes and double check to make sure that they do confer antibiotic resistance to these um, for, the, for uh, a modern strain of bacteria. And so what this is showing here is that each of these different shapes is a different type of uh, antibiotic resistance gene. There's a lot in the, the sort of pres present active layer of the core. Uh, and as you go back, you see fewer and fewer genes, but even if you go back to 14 meters, you see you know, antibiotic resistance genes occurring all the way back there. That must be tens of thousands of years. And so bacteria have been, uh, have had these genes for a very long time, um, and they do work as, as antibiotic resistance genes. So then the question is, why, do why did antibiotic resistance genes exist that long ago? Okay, so um, I think B is the best answer, um, although A is probably also likely true. Um, it's that these antibiotic resistance genes probably provided defense against other microbes that were producing antibiotics. So I don't know if you guys know this, but where we get antibiotics is from other microbes. We find them. Um, they, they're being produced by fungi, or they can even be produced by other uh, bacteria, and then we use them, and we use them for our own therapies. Um, so we're taking them from nature, and so because they occurred in nature, nature has already responded in a way to mitigate you know, being killed by these antibiotics, and so there's already these existing genes that can cope with the challenge that we're giving them. We are, we are producing antibiotics at such a high rate and using them at such a high rate that we are putting more and more pressure on microbial populations to use these genes and to, to cause these genes to spread, um, but they did exist there in the very beginning. A is also a good answer, um, and it addresses this uh, concept of pleiotropy, that uh, you can, an organism can evolve uh, a gene for a certain function and that gene can have costs, it can have side effects, um, and sometimes those side effects though are not costly but are actually good and that it confers antibiotic resistance. And so this is, this is probably uh, what happened as well, is that some of these genes do something else for the cell, uh, then they are co-opted for this new function uh, to confer antibiotic resistance. Okay, so what's the data? Uh, that supports this idea 
that antibiotic resistance genes evolve um, to deal with microbes that uh, produce antibiotics, and why would microbes produce antibiotics in the first place? Uh, they're very costly for microbes to produce, so why, why would they go through the energy of killing other bacteria, their bacteria themselves? Well, basically, bacteria are in this arms race with each other where they're competing for resources, they're competing for space, and one way to better compete for resources and to better compete for space is by killing off your opponents. And so that's basically what they're doing. This is a Petri dish. Um, you can't see the dish because it's in the dark. Um, bacteria have fluorescent labels on them so that bacteria that produce antibiotics are red and bacteria that are sensitive to those antibiotics are blue. And what this Petri dish is showing you is that the producers have this nice halo effect around them, this nice clearing of, of cells around them so that they have access to more resources on that Petri dish and more space to grow. You can see their, their colonies are pretty big um, compared to this sort of speckled blue colonies in the background, the sensitive ones are being killed off by the producers. And you can do the same experiment, but now you have producers and resistant cells. And so there are the same number of producers uh, on, this, on this Petri dish. You can't see them as well. If you sort of squint, you can see some red in there. Um, and uh, that's because they are being overwhelmed by these resistant bacteria that are not affected by the antibiotic. And so they can just move in and, and sort of push the producer out and, and grow around their areas. And so the producer takes a fitness cost because it's, it's, the, its weapon that it's spending energy on is no longer useful. So these plates remind me of how we first discovered antibiotics in the first place. Uh, so Alexander Fleming in 1928 uh, discovered penicillin. So penicillin is a highly effective antibiotic that we still use today. Uh, and this really ushered in a new era of medicine, especially, well, specifically in treating bacterial infections. So here's a, here's a picture of Ale Alexander Fleming. Um, and this discovery is this really nice example of what we call serendipity for a prepared mind. So Alexander Fleming in the lab was not anticipating that he would discover antibiotics, but he did because he made an observation on a Petri dish um, that led him to that discovery. And if any old person was looking at that Petri dish, they probably wouldn't have noticed anything. But because Alexander Fleming was observant and had training in microbiology, he realized something weird was going on. And he investigated that weirdness and that led us to the discovery of antibiotics and transforming our medicine. And so this is a picture supposedly of the plate, the original plate that he made the observation. Uh, I didn't have enough time to verify that, so take it for what it is, it's off the internet. Um, and, uh, and I really can't tell what's, what the hell's going on. This kind of looks like the, the Milky Way uh, rather than a very nice, clear picture. Um, but this paints a, a clearer picture of what Alexander uh, was observing. And so what he was observing is that there were his Petri dishes were contaminated by a fungus. And that fungus, wherever that fungus grew, then he would see a clearing around that fungus so the bacteria, so this is what, what I'm showing on this plate right now, is a lawn of bacteria 
So this is just bacteria smeared all over the top of a petri dish, and then he then uh, there are uh, spores of fungus that landed in these different parts of the plate, um, and then once they begin to grow, they excrete something that's penicillin that uh, created this clearing around it. So Alexander Fleming wanted to know what is this compound that's being excreted and you know, can we develop it into an antibiotic? And so he didn't do that necessarily just himself, but uh, in collaboration with lots and lots of other people. Um, but this was the first observation that made him think, huh, there's something here, there's something interesting, I need to investigate this further. So now in the lecture, I want to go into quantifying uh, antibiotic sensitivity of bacteria. Then if we have a way of quantifying that, we can determine whether or not bacteria have evolved resistance to the antibiotic. And so uh, a way that is still used, it's, it's not the greatest, but it's still used, it's very efficient um, to run, is this DISC approach that is very similar to uh, the type of assay that led Alexander Fleming to discover antibiotics in the first place. And so what this disc assay is, is you take a Petri dish and you put um, a, a, you smear a bunch of bacteria in the Petri dish. The bacteria can grow then. It's, it's a light film. You have very few cells. You can't see the bacteria, um, but they're spread throughout the Petri dish. Uh, and then you allow them to, to grow up. And if there are no antibiotics on the plate, they would just form what we call a lawn. Um, and, but what you do is you put these discs down on the plate. These are little pieces of paper that you've put certain antibiotics or certain concentrations of antibiotics onto those discs. Uh, you allow for growth uh, for 24 hours or for however long you know, that the bacteria that you're using actually grows. And um, then you look for these areas of clearing. And so for antibiotic C, this bacteria that's in the lawn is sensitive to antibiotic C, so you have a uh, really large clearing, whereas this bacteria much, must be uh, resistant to antibiotic A, and so it grows all the way up to the edge of the disc, um, and there's no clearing at all. And obviously B is some intermediate level of sensitivity uh, to that antibiotic. And so people can actually quantify the level of sensitivity by uh, measuring the distance, so the, uh, the diameter, um, through this circle from one edge to the other edge. Um, and you can even make assumptions about how certain antibiotics diffuse through the agar so that you would know roughly what the concentration is here. And this is, this, um, this is where there's a threshold where once the antibiotic gets so dilute, the bacteria you know, they, they encounter the antibiotic, but they can deal with that level of the antibiotic, and so they grow. And so you can, you can sort of make these sort of back-of-the-envelope calculations for what, what level of, or concentration of antibiotic that is, although I have to say that is very rough and makes a lot of assumptions. A better way to quantify, quantify what is the exact concentration of antibiotics that causes bacteria not to be able to grow is this tube-based method to figure out MIC. Uh, I don't think I said what MIC was, sorry. Uh, MIC is minimal inhibitory concentration. So it's the concentration of the uh, antibiotic that is as dilute as you can get while still being able to stop the bacteria 
uh, from being able to grow. And so what you do is you set up a series of test tubes where you have um, all of these different test tubes have different concentrations of a given antibiotic. So micrograms per milliliter is usually the, the unit. So you set up all these test tubes and you add in inoculum, a, a small inoculum of bacteria to each of these test tubes. And then you give them one day to grow in the lab. And then the next day you come in and you just observe at what concentrations, what conditions did the bacteria actually grow overnight and which conditions did they not grow in. And so we can see that between uh, one and two, uh, there's a concentration of antibiotic that begins to inhibit growth. And so we'd say the min min minimal inhibitory concentration is two micrograms per milliliter. The real value is some value between one and two. We, we don't have the resolution to figure that out, but don't worry about it. This is enough resolution that, that we can then know what kind of dosages to give people. And we can know that this bacteria is, is sensitive to the antibiotic. So there are multiple class, there's two large classes of antibiotics, bacterial static and bacterial societal antibiotics, or these are also called bacteriolytic antibiotics. And the difference between them is whether or not the, the antibiotic just arrests the bacterial growth or if the antibiotic actually kills the bacteria. And so um, this is just obviously a cartoon of bacterial growth. This is number of cells. Actually, given that this is a straight line, this should be log number of cells. I should have done that, sorry. Uh, and this is time. And what it's just showing is that you have uh, the growth of the bacteria, um, you administer the antibiotic here, and for the bacterial static, they just, it just arrests growth and you, you have a stable population size of the bacteria. Um, for the bacteriolytic antibiotic, you actually have uh, dying off of the bacterial removal of the bacterial population by the antibiotic action itself. And so here are uh, a number of antibiotics uh, that you've even probably have taken at some point in your life. Uh, don't worry about memorizing which antibiotic falls into which category. I don't care about that. I just thought I'd give you this information in case you are taking antibiotics or have taken them and you want to know sort of what kind they were. But what you see is I've, I've taken tetracycline and uh, the sulfa um, uh, antibiotics before, and uh, these are bacterial static antibiotics. So it makes me wonder, well, what, how did I get cured of that infection if I was taking an antibiotic that just arrested growth of the bacteria rather than actually eliminating the bacteria? And um, the way that bacterial static antibiotics work is they stop the, the infection um, and then they allow the immune system, system to come in and wipe out those bacteria. So if the bacteria are growing exponentially, your immune system does have some probability of clearing up the infection, but sometimes the infection gets out of control. And so the immune system can't cope with it and can't stop it. Um, and so if you give antibiotics, even if they just arrest the growth of the bacteria, then, um, then your, your immune system can sort of come in and you know, um, begin to wipe out those, those bacteria. And so obviously uh, bacterial static or bacteriolytic antibiotics are, are good as well and, and maybe even you know, address the problem more directly of the infection. But we wanna be able to use multiple different types of antibiotics because we know that antibiotic resistance uh, is common in bacteria. 
Okay, so there are um, lots of different antibiotics that we've developed over the years, uh, and they tend to have uh, different mechanisms of action. Uh, and those different mechanisms of action uh, tend to put them in the cytal category or the static category. And so there are these different modes of action of the antibiotics, um, and you know they tend to a whole whole lot of them tend to inhibit key enzymes that assist in cell, cellular survival and cellular growth. Um, a lot of them tend to inhibit cell membrane permeability, or and so that interferes with the integrity of the cell. Uh, inter they interfere with the cell wall synthesis that also interferes with the integrity of the cell. And so these are often bactericidal um, antibiotics because they actually cause the cell to lice or, or cause it to uh, just break, fall apart. And so uh, other ways that antibiotics act are on DNA synthesis or protein synthesis. And these tend to be your static antibiotics. These arrest the growth of the bacteria. Um, if you remove them from, from the environment, then they can begin to grow again, as long as they haven't been in this stasis for too, too long. Okay, so there's these kind of large categories of antibiotics, and I go over them um, because it really does have implications for um, how they work and uh, the sort of fitness costs that the bacteria pay, one is that it just stops growing, one is actually that it dies. But I have to say that biology is really muddy. And so this clear, this sort of uh, binary classification of bacteriolytic or uh, bacterial static antibiotics uh, is not as discreet as I was sort of describing. And actually it turns out that many antibiotics are um, both bactericidal and bacteriostatic, um, and that what determines whether or not they're one or the other is their concentration. And so this is true for tetracycline. And so we have this other concept or this other thing to measure that's not just MIC, but now MBC, the minimal bactericidal concentration. So um, we can augment our experiment for MIC in a way that we can get to MBC. And so we perform the MIC just like we did before. And then what we do is we have another day of experiments. And what we do is we set up another series of test tubes. These test tubes have no antibiotics in them. And we just transfer a really small volume of the previous day's test tube into these fresh test tubes. And um, it's such a small volume that it really doesn't transfer any of the antibiotics into these test tubes. So the concentration of antibiotics here is effectively zero for all of them. And, uh, but you're, what you are transferring are a few cells if they exist in those test tubes. And so of course we know they exist in these test tubes here. Um, and so when we transfer them and we give them 24 hours to grow, we see very dense populations of the bacteria. Um, and then what's new, and the new information that we're getting is that actually in two, four, and eight, they look completely empty, but they're not. There's a few cells, we can't see them and it's hard to detect them, but there's a few cells in these test tubes. They're not growing, but they're still surviving. And so at this, at this um, antibiotic concentration, they, they survived 
And when we transfer them to uh, an environment that doesn't have the antibiotic, then they, they respond and they begin to grow up again. And so at these concentrations, this antibiotic is bacterial static. And then at these even higher concentrations, the antibiotic is bacterial lytic. And so this is a way, this is an experiment, very simple for us to get an MIC and MBC. So here's a question. So can MIC ever be greater than MBC? And the answer is no. If you kill a cell, it's dead. It doesn't recover. Uh, so, you know, MIC, if your MIC equals your MBC, then game's over. The, the cell dies. There's, there, there actually is, is no MIC. There's just an MBC. Um, so there's very few rules in biology. But if you kill off a cell, it can't resurrect itself and regrow later. So, you know, MIC can never be greater than MBC. What kind of antibiotic has an MIC which equals its MBC? And that's a bactericidal antibiotic, bacteriolytic antibiotic. This is where its mode of action is by killing, and so there's no concentration where it actually starts to inhibit growth. Just at the concentration where it begins to work, it kills off the cell, and so the MIC is the MBC. Okay. So given this framework to measure sensitivity to antibiotics, what does the evolution of antibiotic resistance look like um, with this assay? And it would be that you take a strain of bacteria and you measure its sensitivity, uh, you measure its MIC, uh, and then you allow it to mutate to be resistant to the antibiotic, and then you can take that mutant and remeasure its sensitivity, and uh, you'll see that it has uh, expanded its range of concentrations in which it's able to grow. And so this would be, this would mean that it is now able to grow, you know, up to some, some uh, concentration between eight and 16. 16 is the MIC for this experiment. Um, and so you'll note that when a bacteria is resistant, that yes, that's sort of a, again, binary kind of thing. You're resistant or sensitive. But in reality, biology is more complicated, and it's that you're resistant to a certain concentration of the antibiotic. And, um, and so this has expanded its resistance, but it still has, there's still concentrations of the antibiotics that, that would wipe out the bacteria. And so we saw that uh, in that massive plate uh, experiment from last lecture where bacteria successfully got more and more mutations to become more and more antibiotic resistance to grow at higher and higher concentrations. And eventually it was like a thousand fold higher than, than they're originally able to, um, to grow under. So it, it, they can acquire massive amounts of antibiotic resistance. So yeah, let's get to resistance. Uh, so actually the problem with antibiotic resistance could have been identified and was identified um, early on in the development of antibiotics. Actually, on the very first plates and the very first experiments ever done on these sort of penicillin-producing fungus, um, they discovered that there were bacteria that uh, were resistant to the penicillin, that they had evolved resistance to that penicillin. And so if you look at this plate, you don't notice it at first, but if you zoom in um, to this clearing, uh, you can see that there's a little tiny bacterial colony 
And that is where a mutant occurred that caused resistance to penicillin. And so it was able to found a colony. So now that's probably hundreds of thousands to millions of cells uh, growing on the Petri dish. So people, I would say, went forward anyways because it's effective at killing a lot of the bacteria, just not 100%. Um, I really wish, though, at that st stage, they would have thought a little bit more about the consequences of you know, the, this low probability of evolving resistance and how, over time, that low probability event could magnify and create the pending crisis that we're about to experience. So um, how does, and we've talked a little bit about how antibiotics work, so how does antibiotic resistance work? Um, and there's kind of two, I broke them down into kind of two strategies. Um, the cell can avoid the antibiotic or avoid the action of the antibiotic, or the cell can actually actively operate on the antibiotic to remove it from the cell or to destroy it uh, from the cell. And so you can sort of walk through this, this uh, figure here. I think it's really beautiful and, and relatively clear. But so we have these different shapes, antibiotic A, B, and C, and we have different actions uh, in, by which the cell can avoid these antibiotics. And so what, for antibiotic A, this is a protein that the, this is penicillin binding protein um, that the antibiotic acts on. And, and that's the, by the antibiotic being able to interfere with this enzyme, that's what uh, interferes with its, uh, its ability to grow uh, and interferes with the survival of the cell. And so um, what the bacteria can do is it can just augment the shape of where, of the protein with the mutation of where the, um, the antibiotic actually binds. And so um, by doing that, it can no longer bind, it can no longer interact with that enzyme. And so then the bacteria, it's almost like there isn't any antibiotic in the environment at all. Uh, for antibiotic C, uh, this is, uh, sorry, antibiotic C is here. Uh, it has, it's sort of maybe a larger molecule that the bacteria is able to actually uh, change some aspect of its outer membrane so that it blocks the antibiotic from actually being transported into the cell. And so the bacteria is swimming around like, like there's nothing in the environment that is threatening its life. Other, other ways are these sort of intrinsic mechanisms. And so uh, there are these efflux pumps that we'll talk a lot about. Uh, efflux pumps are these really cool molecular machines that are embedded in the outer membrane and inner membrane of, um, of bacteria. And they are basically little pumps that take um, compounds like this antibiotic B and actually just pump them out of the cell and get rid of them, put them back into the environment. And as long as the pump can keep up with um, with the concentration of antibiotic that's coming into the cell, then it can confer resistance. Another way too is for um, the cell to produce enzymes that act directly on the antibiotic to render them unable to interfere with the cellular components that they normally interact with and interfere with. So, you know, what, is, what are the types of mutations really look like that give you antibiotic resistance? For the efflux pump, uh, the type of mutation, so a lot of bacterial genomes actually have uh, genes for efflux pumps, but often those genes are turned off. 
These efflux pumps are very expensive. They cost ATP to actually um, remove, uh, to actually work and remove antibiotics. Uh, and so if there aren't antibiotics in the environment, you don't want to be using that ATP to do this. Um, and so often the, the regulatory system of the bacteria is not set up to respond to certain antibiotics. And so they will be turned off there'll be this kind of conditional promoter is what I'm calling it, where if this molecule here is bound to the DNA, it doesn't express these three genes for the efflux pump. Um, and you know, even in antibiotic conditions, this molecule might be bound to the DNA um, and interfere with promotion of these genes. And so you can get a mutation in this regulatory region of the gene um, so that this inhibitor no longer binds to the binds to the DNA, and then this is now what we call a constitutive promoter. It's a um, promoter that's always on. And so if it's always on, then no matter when the cell experiences antibiotics, it'll have the machinery in place to actually uh, confer resistance, to pump out those, those, those uh, bad molecules. And so this is just one example. There's lots of ways that you can get these kind of regulatory mutations. This is just the simplest. For, for you know, the exam and for this class, just know that there, there can be these pre-existing efflux pumps in cells that paradoxically do not turn on when the cell most needs them. And so mutations can then occur in the regulation of these genes such that they turn on these um, genes all the time and that confers resistance. So one other way, it's not a mutation, but one other way that you can get an efflux pump is that perhaps a cell doesn't have an efflux pump and then gets one from another cell through horizontal gene transfer. Another type of resistance um, is that you can change the kind of two different ways. You can change the, the target site of the antibiotic. So here's the antibiotic, it comes into the cell, it works on this protein, this is just the gene that encodes the protein. You can get a mutation in that gene that augments it like I talked about already. Um, you could also, this is a little bit more sophisticated, you could turn on a gene in your genome that you might already have or you might get uh, horizontally transferred that creates a protein that interacts with this binding site in a way that this protein that the antibiotic axon still works, um, but it blocks the antibiotic from actually binding to that target site. Um, so that's, that's another, another way of doing it as well. And this is, these are examples that I, I didn't go over in that first uh, summary image where uh, you have different ways of the cell producing a whole new protein um, that either hydrolyzes the antibiotics so the antibiotic can't work on the uh, target protein any longer, or the, the, this, this new gene encodes for a protein um, that adds features to the antibiotic compound. It changes it in a way that now its shape is wrong, and so that shape doesn't fit into this pocket any, any longer, and so we don't get the activity of the antibiotic. So just to sort of circle back, there's lots of different ways of producing antibiotic resistance, lots of different genes that can mutate and ways that mutations work. And we know that um, when we grow bacteria in the lab and we give them a condition where they can stepwise increase their level of antibiotic resistance from one 
uh, slab of this large petri dish to another, that they can get very high levels of antibiotic resistance through multiple novel mutations. Um, and so these mutations can accumulate to give you really just uh, to basically create this, this super bug that has, has no response anymore to this antibiotic. So the same lab uh, that created that giant petri dish uh, before that had actually created a much more controlled laboratory system in order to, to study the evolution of antibiotic resistance and the sequential evolution of antibiotic resistance where you get these really, really high levels. And so I want to go into these studies because it really highlights um, some important concepts in evolutionary biology and shows you how uh, bacteria can evolve high levels of resistance, but you actually can hit a wall for the bacteria so they can't evolve to even higher levels of antibiotic resistance. So what, why do they hit a wall um, and how, what do the evolutionary dynamics look like to tell us that? Those are the types of questions we're gonna answer. So this device is called a morbidostat. Do not, uh, the name is kind of cool. Um, do not worry about the actual mechanics of how this all works. But basically what you need to know is that they are culturing the bacteria and the bacteria are growing. Um, and whenever the bacteria get too dense in the vessel, they, you know, they have a camera keeping track of the bacteria, keeping track of the density, then they begin to add in antibiotics to halt the growth of the bacteria. And so then the bacteria begin to uh, decline through time um, because they, they have these antibiotics that are killing them off. Um, but then eventually in the device, the antibiotics become lower in concentration. And so then the bacteria begin to rebound again. And so once it hits that threshold again, we, we sort of hit on the antibiotics and the bacteria respond again. Um, this is this actually, now that I'm looking at this graph, is kind of like our, our social distancing, that once you hit a threshold, you want to start social distancing to get the disease to drop back down. Um, but in this experiment, the goal of this is to keep continuously applying selective pressure and to modify that selective pressure so that if you develop resistance, if the bacteria develops resistance, you can put on, push more antibiotics more frequently into the, into the test tube um, so that you challenge the bacteria even more. And so obviously if this is you know, normal ancestral bacteria, if during this period, um, if during this period there was a bacterial cell that wasn't impacted by these antibiotics, yes, that, that one cell is you know, really low in density, but it's gonna to continue to grow while all these other cells are dying off. And so when it continues to grow, um, it's going to eventually dominate in the population and take over. And so this next administration of antibiotics is not gonna be as effective against it. And so then they're just gonna to have to hit in more and more antibiotics, but their system is smart and adaptable. And so it can, it can do that. So this is just an experimental system uh, in order to generate higher and higher levels of antibiotic resistance under a controlled setting. So here are what the data look like from just one of these experiments. And it's set up so you can run lots and lots of these experiments. We are just gonna look at one antibiotic and the evolutionary dynamics of resistance to that antibiotic. Uh, and uh, this is terrible. I'm actually forgetting which of the antibiotics we chose. I will get back to that. I'm sure it's in a couple slides. What I'm plotting here, or what the, the authors of, 
of the study plotted uh, was time. And uh, this is, oh, I'm sorry, here's the antibiotic, TMP, uh, trimethoprim is the antibiotic. Uh, and it's micrograms per milliliter uh, plotted on the y-axis. And then they have this sort of shading here. And what, it, what they're doing is they are isolating bacteria from different time points in the experiment. And they are evaluating, okay, bacteria in the very beginning of the experiment, um, under basically one microgram per milliliter, what is its ability to grow? And under zero micrograms per milliliter, what is its ability to grow? And under, so, um, under uh, you know, 10 micrograms per milliliter, what is its ability uh, to grow? And so what they find is that it's able to grow at zero. It's able to grow at one, but just right above one, it, it stops being able to grow. And what they compute then is this, um, what they're calling IC50. So it's similar to an MIC, uh, but in their, they're using different approaches. Uh, this more sophisticated uh, liquid media approach um, that's automated. And so they use this IC50. And basically, that is the concentration in which the bacterial growth is reduced by one half. Um, and so what they do is they take the value of the bacteria growing at zero, so that's R of zero, and they take the value of the bacteria growing at the specific concentrations of the antibiotics that they're testing, so a huge range of concentrations, and then they're looking at their relative growth rate. Um, this is not an evolved strain compared to an ancestral strain. This is the same strain where it's in the exposure of the antibiotics and compared to its uh, original ability to grow um, without antibiotics in the environment. Um, and so the IC50 is this value here, where it's cut reduced by 50%. And so they're just plotting where um, the IC50 values are uh, through, throughout the, the experiment. Uh, and then they're also plotting you know, these shades of red to tell you how well is the bacteria able to grow at these um, sub-inhibitory concentrations. And so what we see is that through time, in a step-like process, uh, you get advances in their ability to cope with antibiotics at a very high level. Uh, so remember, this is a log scale here. So this is a lot higher than, the, you know, it's a thousand times higher than what they started out the experiment with. And so um, that's, that's pretty cool. The other thing that they did was they repeated the experiment uh, multiple times, so five different times. So each of these lines is the equivalent of this black line um, but just for different experimental replicates, different flasks. So what they see is, and it's pretty interesting, all of the populations take a very similar trajectory. So this is a case where evolution seems highly repeatable, uh, and they all max out at the same level. So they don't go beyond this concentration, they just max out this concentration. So this information does tell us what is the in intrinsic potential of bacteria to evolve resistance to trimethoprim. And so you could ask the question, can you actually deliver more trimethoprim um, safely to a, to a patient? And if so, then you, know, you have your solution to antibiotic resistance to trimethoprim. This is incredibly high. Um, so this is probably too concentrated to actually give to a patient. 
And so the next question is this at the phenotypic level, this evolution is highly repeatable. Is it also repeatable at the genetic level? And so what they did is they sequenced whole genomes of bacteria isolated from different time points in these different replicate experiments. So replicate one through replicate five. Um, let's ignore this for the moment and just look at the dynamics. They've put this, the, the phenotypic response and underneath the phenotypic response, they are giving you information about mutations in the genome. And so um, in all of, or most of these experiments, the first mutation that they get is a gray mutation. And so you can use this key over here to figure out what that is. That's a regulatory mutation um, that uh, must, I'm assuming, I should have thought through this beforehand, must upregulate um, the, um, the molecule that the antibiotics work on. And so if you have a relatively low concentration of antibiotics, so this is, this is a protein diagram and these colored um, regions are the amino acids that are changing in the protein to confer resistance. So this must be the binding pocket um, of the antibiotic to that protein. But the first mutation they get is to just uh, change the regulation of the protein, probably upregulate the protein so that yes, um, some, some antibiotic is binding to the protein, but there's not enough to stop all the proteins from functioning. But then later on, as you increase the concentration of the antibiotic in the experiment, you need additional mutations that are now operating in the binding pocket of the protein um, to enhance antibiotic resistance. And you can see that there's accumulation of now two mutations, three mutations, four mutations. Um, what this pie chart is showing us is that at this time point, or at every time point, they isolated four independent bacteria and sequenced the genome. So three of the four had this one mutation. There are two pie charts here. Those are, they each have four sections. That's one per bacteria that they isolated. They only isolated four bacteria, but it's saying that four of the four bacteria have this mutation and four of the four bacteria have the second mutation we can see that that second mutation hasn't fixed in the population yet because in the next time point, we see that there is one bacteria that still hasn't evolved this mutation, but we don't see any instances of that later. So at some time between this time point and that time point, that beneficial antibiotic resistance mutation fixed. And so you can look along here and um, to get this high level resistance again and again, you get four mutations evolving and they tend to be associated with uh, this protein here, with either the expression of the protein or changing an amino acid in the protein in a way that deflects the antibiotic away from the protein. One interesting thing that these, uh, these researchers did is they found in all of these different treatments four mutations, but they weren't the identical four mutations. They were similar to each other. And so they asked, okay, they found all these different mutations and they focused in on six mutations, I think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven mutations, uh, but they can, only make, uh, they can only put in six at one time into the genome because these mutations are in the same location as each other. So they focused on these seven mutations and they just wanted to genetically engineer a bacteria to see whether or not adding in these mutations uh, confer additional resistance uh, to the antibiotic. So we could 
you know, the fact that this is kind of a, a combination of evolution, but also now genetic engineering. And um, what they found is that actually six mutations is not better than four mutations. Actually, four mutations give you the peak level of resistance and evolution had naturally found the optimum. And so at this point, I'm, I'm gonna go now to the board and I wanna talk about a concept that is fitness landscapes. And this concept is just a key concept in evolutionary biology that was revealed by um, the experiment that these researchers did. Uh, it's called fitness landscapes, and you probably have learned about it in intro biology. If you haven't, I'm here now to, to sort of teach you about fitness landscapes. Okay, so I just wanna go to the board and I just wanna draw a fitness landscape, and it'll be pretty quick. Um, this is a concept from 1930s, uh, and it wasn't until very recently that we're able to actually make the measurements that are appropriate um, to uh, actually observe a fitness landscape. This was just a conceptual tool that people would teach people or, or use to teach people about the evolutionary process and the adaptive process. And so like always, just check, okay. Um, we have an x-axis and this is a trait of an organism. And those, this can also be genotypes or mutations. Uh, so genotypes and mutations obviously affect traits, and that's going to affect, on the y-axis, fitness. And so we often um, think of these landscapes and why they're called landscapes as having these hills. And so we think of the way that adaptation works is that, that a population will occur um, and will have certain a certain trait, so this is the average trait value of that population, but there's some variance in that trait, some variance in maybe antibiotic resistance. Um, and so that's what gives you sort of this spread around this point. And in this environment, the ones that do really well and grow really well uh, occur here. You can see that they have higher fitness than certainly these ones that have lower fitness here. And so these organisms are going to be selected for. And so at some time point in the future, you're going to have the mean of the population changing to this point and some mutations are, that cause variance around that mean. And so you're still going to get some variance. And then these ones are going to be selected for and that population is going to keep moving until it hits the optimal. And that optimality is uh, this fitness peak. And so if the population continues to mutate and change, so if you have mutations, then they are going to both, on both sides of that, that distribution, they're going to drop you down in fitness. And so natural selection is gonna, it's called purifying selection. It's going to keep you on that fitness peak. Um, and so, but, and that's what happened in the experiment is that they got to this fitness peak of four mutations, but we artificially engineered in five mutations and six mutations and drove the fitness back down in the, in the, in the artificial population. And so let's actually, so this is fitness landscapes. We use it to visualize how organisms are adapting to their environments and finding this fitness peak. 
Um, there's lots of descriptions online of how fitness landscapes work and it helps you get an intuition for how adaptive evolution works. Um, and so then, um, uh, you know, you can get a better feel for it. But uh, let's go back to the actual data to look at what that fitness landscape looks like. What these, what these researchers were able to do is to make genetic constructs of all combinations of six of those mutations. And so, and now they've plotted what is, you know, this looks like a landscape, this is a fitness landscape. And so let me just go over what they're actually plotting. And so we have uh, a genotype that has no mutations in it. And then we have an array of genotypes that have exactly one mutation. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different kinds um, that have just one mutation in them. And what's uh, plotted on the, the z-axis, so coming out of the screen, um, is the IC75. So this is just like IC50 for whatever reason, for whatever convenient reason, uh, they use IC75 uh, to determine the level of resistance that's happening due to these different mutations. And so what the key is, is that they look at it for just one, but they also look at uh, how the mutations uh, affect the, fit, uh, the resistance for when they're together and as two or as combinations of three or as combinations of four, five, and six. What this gives us is not just, it gives us direct information on how good these mutations are at conferring resistance to antibiotics. So resistance is a surrogate here for fitness. So how in this environment, how well you're dealing, coping with the antibiotic is what determines most of your fitness. And so what they're, what they're looking at is what are the sort of direct responses of the bacteria due to just these individual mutations. So this is just zooming in this box here into the smaller region so that we can see what the direct fitness effects are and then, um, then we can see sort of the rest of the landscape relative to um, the direct fitness effects. And what we have to be concerned with is that not all mutations combine together in, in the same way. Some produce synergistic interactions with each other. Some produce antagonistic interactions with each other. And so those interactions are what causes these like wavy kinds of shapes in this, in this landscape so that you know, there's some pathways, this is a really good one, um, and then that one interacts really well with another, um, this light green mutation, but it doesn't interact quite as well with the other mutations. And so you can look at different trajectories through this landscape where you get these beneficial genetic interactions and the population is likely to sort of move through the landscape. So the population is much likelier to move when you get these large increases in fitness. But you can see from this point, it seems that the population is relatively stuck that a lot of its places that it can advance to are not as high in fitness as this. This would be a local peak, but there are trajectories that move you through the landscape. The overall shape of the landscape shows you that the highest fitness you can achieve is with four, that when you add in five and when you add in six, you actually begin to decrease in fitness. And so that fitness optimum is achieved by four mutations. And in the actual experiment, that's where the bacteria stopped evolving as well. So there is a fitness optimum, and you can't get above the concentration of antibiotics. You can't evolve above this concentration of antibiotics. And so if you can deliver even higher concentrations, then you can wipe out this bacteria. 
So this is just me plotting a pathway through the fitness landscape that's easy to look at. And I wanna sort of just walk through um, the, the progression of this pathway uh, and how fitness increases over as, as you layer in more and more mutations. And just to sort of demonstrate, um, you know, you can have these small jumps and then much larger jumps. Uh, but once you get to four mutations, then you begin to crash down in fitness. And so this, this sort of crashing in fitness, these, these, this is due to a negative genetic interaction. This is due to what we call epistasis. So epistasis is this idea that the fitness benefit of a mutation depends on the genome that that mutation occurs in and the other mutations that are in that genome. And so if you have a bacteria that does not have a, any mutations for resistance already, um, then the green mutation is good and the blue mutation is good. Um, but if you already have these four mutations, then their effect is negative. So this dependence of the genotype is what we call epistasis. And that's what you know, teaches us about the types of mutational pathways that organisms will take as they're adapting and also tells us about the, this optimality in the fitness landscapes and the limit to which they can achieve high fitness or high levels of antibiotic resistance. So here's just a summary of, of how to think about epistasis. What you wanna look for is non-additivity. So what the hell does non-additivity mean? So say you have a mutation that gives you a fitness advantage, that's A mutation and a B mutation. Um, you know, there, it's a certain amount of fitness advantage. These are just the same heights just for simplicity. They don't have to be the same height. Um, and if you added them together in the same genome and their fitness equaled A plus B, then you would, be, you would say that they're acting in an additive way. Um, and uh, so there's no epistasis. Each of these things are mutations are doing their own things and combined together. Uh, negative epistasis means that certainly if you put these two things together and you get deleterious fitness effects, well, that's negative epistasis. But negative epistasis is also if you put them together and they just don't add up to the same level that you would expect if you just, if you had them both independently providing their fitness benefits. And then certainly positive means that any, any fitness gain above what you would expect for this additive model um, that would be positive epistasis. And so evolution is, you know, playing around not just with specific mutations, but how these mutations interact with each other and is selecting for these genomes where you get these certainly positive interactions or at least just not um, really deleterious interactions between mutations where you can reach this, this sort of optimal level of, of uh, antibiotic resistance. So the way epistasis works in this system, it can work in differently in different systems, is that um, you, you begin to pile on a bunch of mutations in the same part of the protein that probably begins to um, disrupt the protein and contort its shape in a way that uh, interferes with the protein. Remember, the antibiotic interferes with the protein. You don't want your mutations to interfere with the protein. And so they combine together in negative ways, and that's why fitness begins to drop your mutations are having the exact same effect that the antibiotic itself should have. So 
I want you to understand epistasis for a number of reasons. It'll help us predict evolution. If we are able to measure epistasis and measure these fitness landscapes, predict dynamics on these fitness landscapes, but also more just for a very fundamental reason that um, epistasis is really prevalent in genomes. And so if you're thinking in molecular biology or in evolutionary biology or lots of different fields of biology, anytime you're thinking about more than just one gene at a time, you have to consider how those genes interact with each other and they likely interact in unintuitive ways. And that unintuitive way is, is epistasis. So I always like to think of, I think a lot of people think of the genome as being a bunch of different Legos where you have, um, you have all these different genes that come together to build cells and build processes so far, so forth. And that's true. Uh, genes are much like Legos coming together to build tissues and organisms and so forth. Um, but they interact with each other, not like the old school Legos when I was a kid, but much more like the modern Legos that we have where all of these different parts uh, fit together in specific ways. And so some Lego parts don't interact well with other Lego parts. And so the genome is much more, um, uh, much more sort of nuanced and the interactions between genes are much more complicated, kind of like more modern Legos. I hope that, that uh, analogy helps. So to summarize, we went over that, you know, this antibiotic resistance crisis is going to be like this COVID-19 crisis. It's going to be catastrophic. It's going to be a nightmare. But it's, it's in the future when it is going to get really bad. And there are strategies that we're developing to deal with this antibiotic crisis. But we do need more effort and more energy uh, put towards that. Uh, the reason why we have this crisis is that there are these genes that already existed that um, bacteria can easily mutate to get them to work and cause antibiotic resistance, or they already conferred antibiotic resistance and they're increasing in their frequency in the population, um, and that's a huge problem. Uh, we discussed ways of measuring uh, the effectiveness of the antibiotic through MIC and MBC. We talked about multiple different types of antibiotics and their different actions uh, in different ways of conferring antibiotic resistance. And then we went in depth into the evolution of trimethoprim uh, resistance, the multiple different mutations that confer resistance, how they interact with each other, how they produce this fitness landscape with a peak at four mutations. Okay, so thank you guys. And uh, yeah, we'll keep rolling and I'll see you guys on Tuesday. So take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.